What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. It feels like 10,000 years since we've recorded an episode. I don't think it's been 10,000 years. I don't think it's been 10,000 years, but maybe 9,000. Maybe 9,000 years. It's probably only been like three, maybe four weeks tops. But it sure has felt like a long time since we've done one. Listeners, I love you. Thank you so much for being patient with us. Life is very crazy and chaotic with us. And we're not posting on a regular schedule as much as we would like to and we wish that we could. But we promised a three-part series on Wes Anderson. Part one was on the Royal Tenenbaums. It's a banger. Part two was on my favorite Wes Anderson movie, The Life Aquatic. Strange to find out most people don't like that movie, which I still think is crazy. And now, part three is on Laurel's favorite Wes Anderson movie. Laurel, what movie are we doing? We're doing Moonrise Kingdom, and I'm super excited to talk about it. I've enjoyed talking about all three of these movies because they all have a special place in my heart, and most of Wes's filmography does, but this one is just so important to me. It's so beautiful, and I can't wait to discuss it with you. Can you just give me some, like, quick level before we get too deep into it? You know, why this movie of all of the Wes Anderson movies? There's a lot of ways that I could answer that question. I think at the heart of it, it really just feels like the most deep-down sincere of Wes's outings, at least in this part of his career. And I haven't seen a couple of his most recent films, but it feels like it just exudes this youthful joy and innocence and wonder. And it brings Wes's artistic style to its peak clarity for me. I think this is one of the best expressions of his aesthetic and it is most in service of the story and every choice that he makes in this movie from the casting to the uh, music is extraordinary. I absolutely love that. Like I said, I can't wait to roll up the sleeves, really get to work on this movie. I have a lot of thoughts, opinions, and feelings about this movie. Somehow, I didn't even know this movie existed until I met you. It fell completely off the radar. I completely missed it. I didn't even know about it. And then you were so passionate about it. And then when you showed it to me, 
I don't want to say many years ago, but some years ago, I absolutely adored it. I've seen it twice now. We watched it in preparation for this podcast. And I really, really am bursting out of the seams and wanting to talk about it. However, before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. As always, we are on social media. We're on the we're on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We are not quite on Threads yet, but I'm sure we will get on Threads. <clears throat> I am on Threads. Derek is on Threads. You can talk to Derek on Threads. I'm sure we'll get on Threads at some point. And we're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And the website is just a little bit slightly revamped. I haven't even told you about this, Derek. I made some updates to the Wheel of Ka and Sleep and Sorcery pages so that it is now the Midnight Myth Media website where you can find information about all three of our podcast projects. Speaking of which, you may have noticed in your Midnight Myth feed, and hopefully if you're subscribed to the Wheel of Ka feed as well, that there is a new episode of the Wheel of Ka, which is Derek and Steve's Stephen King podcast. They have the thrilling conclusion of the talisman up and ready for your listening pleasure. So if you're not already reading along and listening with them, definitely pick up the book. Did you guys decide on what is up next for the Wheel of Ka? I know it was a dead heat between Carrie and Misery on the poll. Well, let me check the Twitter poll while you're doing your plugs, and I'll tell you where we're at. I'm very excited either way. They're probably going to do something super suspenseful or horror and very classic Stephen King, and maybe we can do a crossover with the movie for The Midnight Myth. Uh, meanwhile, Sleep and Sorcery is going strong. If you are an insomniac and you love fantasy and folklore, head over to my other podcast, Sleep and Sorcery, which is folklore and fantasy-inspired original sleep stories written by me and performed by me. I also have a book coming out next August. So it's a collection of fan-favorite sleep and sorcery stories, as well as meditations and rituals to enrich your rest and your waking life. And you can uh, pre-order that now. So I will drop a link in the show notes to where to pre-order that book from the publisher. I think that's all I got for you. As far as my thing, leave us a rating and or a review if you can and you enjoy the show. And if you don't enjoy the show, keep it to yourself. So just to let you know, by the time this episode goes up, the Twitter poll to vote on the next book Steve and I will do will be closed. Right now, Misery is at 36%. Pet Cemetery and Carrie are tied at second for 29%. So if there are more votes, literally any one of these could win. But it's looking like Misery will be our next book. Can I tell you something? I voted with all three of my Twitter accounts and I voted for three different books with each of them. <laughs> so I did not help the poll at all. I mean, it, 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 that was a decision you made. I and did. And you stand by that decision. And I just and, made it public. And as your husband slash uh, podcast co-host, I stand by your very bizarre decision there. Well done. So there are, 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 could it just be, are there three books you want us to read? I just would love all three of those. The only one I didn't vote for was Cujo, and not because I don't want you to read it, but because, you know, like, cruelty to animals, I think. I don't know. Scary dog. Fair, fair. All right, let's Moving move on, on with the show. Let us go to our briefest of brief recaps. This is a movie about a, I almost said Boy Scout. I forget the name of the scout. Khaki. Khaki Scout. Uh, named Sam, who runs away from the scouts at summer camp on a island with the precipice of a hurricane coming. We find out that the summer before, he met Susie, and they fell in love at a chance encounter at a theater troupe. Susie and Sam have 
both complicated family relationships as Sam is an orphan in a foster home and Susie has very dysfunctional parents. They decide that they're going to run away and they're going to go build a camp on the island and they get to this camp and they call it Moonrise Kingdom. The story is of them running away with everybody trying to find them when eventually the sheriff, the scout leader, social services, because Sam is an orphan, and his foster home decides that he cannot come back, come and find these two estranged lovers and separate them. They decide yet again that they're going to try to reunite. This happens on the precipice of the hurricane coming, and they find themselves trapped on the church where the sheriff of the island decides that he will adopt Sam so that he can stay on the island and be with his love, Susie. Everyone in this is somewhat healed by this endeavor of these two young children willing to risk everything for love, as well as them willing to risk even death for love, as most of the people on this island are in some sort of state of depressive intellectual or pseudo-intellectual apathy. We learn that the sheriff has an affair with Susie's mother, an affair that Susie's mother ends up deciding that she has to call off. Susie's father is horribly depressed by his failed marriage and his bad relationship with his family. And through this, we learn that all of these characters are a little more healed, though still completely imperfect, by this two children willing to risk everything for love, willing to risk everything, even their lives, just to live for a moment. It has this great character who's the weatherman who operates sort of as this oracle slash chorus, kind of guiding the story along, who's sometimes in the story and sometimes above and outside the story. All in all, it is a beautiful, well-told, chock-full of characters. Every character in it gets an arc, and yet the movie still is beautifully 90 minutes long. 90 minutes it's just a wonder, isn't Wait, what, it? 12 characters in it? Why do you need to make a three-hour movie, directors? Anyway, we could, we could talk about that if we'd like. I, uh, I love this movie. I adore it. I've seen it only twice compared to the other two movies we've done, which I have seen multiple times. The movie came out some time ago. Laurel, I just need to know, does this movie hold up? Absolutely. I have no qualms about saying that. This one holds up, and I have... Zero reservations about it. I saw this one in the theater in New York City for some reason. I think I was in the village and I saw it at a, a movie theater in the village. And I have just always found great joy and innocence in it. Some of the things you just said in your recap about the, the love between Sam and Susie being kind of a healing force on this island and how everyone comes through changed and healed and put back together a little bit, but it's almost like... It's just with scotch tape. They've still got their cracks. They've still got their issues, but they are on a journey towards better healing. I think that's one of the things that I love most about it is that this is a movie about ostensibly a loss of innocence and the rites of passage that bring you from childhood into adolescence and adulthood and how there is always something lost there. Every summer has to come to an end, but there's also an innocence that's retained. And there is a promise of continued joy and exploration and adventure, no matter what your age, no matter what your stage in life. And that's one of the things that really always thrills me about it. I always feel very warm after watching it. 
for many reasons, but one of those is that like, I feel like I get to connect to my inner child a little bit and be like, hey, I'm still in touch with her and I'm still doing things for her that she would have been proud of me for. I love that. You know, as some of you know, I've mentioned in previous episodes, but it's been a little bit. At the age of 19, I moved to an island. Now, you didn't have to take a ferry or a boat or a plane to get there. There is a connected bridge and a highway that would take you there. At the age of 19, I moved to an island, and there is something about islanders and the pervasive sadness when you live at a resort island that has all four seasons. Summer is a season where lots of people come. It's very populated. It's very fun. It's very energetic. Fall, it starts to dwindle. And then you have the Long Island winter and spring. In the Northeast Coast, springs on islands are very much just like winters. They are the coldest part of the Northeast Coast because you're off the coast. So you have, well... The coast might be having these beautiful spring days. It's still it was chilly, wet, and dark on the island. The benefit is, hey, once it's summer, it's nowhere near as warm or as hot as everywhere else. And people that live on islands, especially young people who live on islands, can feel very isolated, lonely, and depressed. And a thing that I had gone through as a young person, granted I was 19, I wasn't 12, but still I was young, 19 as a young person, the thing that I identified with is that, yeah, islands can make people weird. Islands can make people a little off. Islands can make people a little isolated. And every single one of these adult characters is both on a literal and metaphorical island. Every single one of them is isolated from Susie's father, who's isolated from Susie's mother. Uh, Susie's mother has a relationship with the sheriff, but it's completely dysfunctional. The sheriff lives on a boat. He's completely isolated. And then even Edward Norton's character, the khaki scout master, is totally lonely. He's a teacher. When that first asks, he goes, I'm a teacher. Well, actually, no, this is who I really am. And I'm a teacher second. And at the end, every single one of these characters, Sam and Susie alike, have someone else in their life to make them less on an island, both literally and both emotionally and metaphorically. And so I think this island metaphor of what it means to be in the Northeast Coast on an island really resonated with me. I'd gone through the struggles of like, this island's awesome, it's beautiful, it's great, and it's lonely, and it's isolated, and there's nothing to do. And that loneliness that you can feel when you live on an island is truly real. And that loneliness, when you metaphorically feel like on an island, is truly real. And I feel like that is the, the, the driving, connecting tissue between all of these character arcs is that all of these characters are lonely and isolated and they feel completely disconnected, save for maybe social services, which isn't a character as much as a, a personification of an institution. She's more like if bureaucrats could have an old god, like if Neil Gaiman is writing the new American gods, he'd have social she's, services. She's the avatar of social services. <laughs> yeah, so she's not much of a character, is more of a force. Um, and so I just absolutely enjoy and love it. I want to talk to you a little bit, I guess this turns to analysis. What do you think of all the flood, the Noah's Ark, 
Give me your thoughts on that. I have so much to say about that. First, I just want to thank you for what you said just there. I thought it was really moving and very descriptive of the film and the characters and their relationships. By the end, everyone gets a lifeline, right? Everybody gets thrown a life preserver and they make a new connection. And all of this tension and isolation and loneliness is driven home by the geography of New Penzance, this particular island, which doesn't have paved roads. It only has an interconnected series of trails and forests, so everybody walks to each other. And there's one guy in a car, Captain Sharp, the uh, Bruce Willis police officer, is the only guy you really see in a car. Other people ride bikes and walk around, so there's this extra layer of loneliness and isolation that's added to that when there's also a little bit of a wilderness aspect to it as well. So talking about the Noah's Ark, uh, comparisons. I have a lot to say about this actually because one of the things that immediately hooked me the first time I saw this movie was that most of the music, diegetic and non-diegetic within this movie, is composed by an English composer named Benjamin Britten, who I have a deep connection to through my past. And so as soon as I saw his name, I was like, this is exciting. An American director is putting Benjamin Britten in his movie. The film starts with Susie's little brothers playing a record that is Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, which is basically this deconstructed track where a narrator is explaining how to put a symphony together and isolates the different um, instruments and instrument groups and then layers them back on top of each other and shows how they play in harmony, which I, again, think speaks a little bit to that island metaphor and to the structure of the movie. But the more important, maybe not more important, but more relevant to our conversation, uh, Benjamin Britten connection, is that Benjamin Britten is the composer of Neues Flüde, Noah's Flood, which is the community church theater production that is being put on when Sam and Susie meet, and another production of it is being put up at the same church at the moment of the storm and the climax of the film. Noah's Flood is a children's opera composed by Benjamin Britten, who was one of the greatest English music composers, probably of all time, but certainly of the 20th century. And I think the fact that it is a children's opera and that it is used as an important marker within this film is deeply important because it is a production that is designed to involve an entire community, to involve children, adults, people of all generations actively participating in important ways within this piece of storytelling. They all come together on one stage and are seen equally and are given equal voice. And Benjamin Britten was very unique as a composer for his sensitivity to the voices of children and for his attention to what children's voices were capable of. So my connection to this composer is that I was in a girls' choir growing up from the time that I was probably about 10 years old until I was 16. And year after year, we sang from Benjamin Britten's A Ceremony of Carols, which was a huge book of Christmas carols that he composed. And these carols are not like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They're not even like Silent Night. They are dizzyingly complex. 
they are really complicated, nuanced pieces of music that we were expected to sing as 10 and 11 and 12 year olds. And to be taken seriously like that as a child and be given a piece of music that is really hard for even an adult to sing, but have a composer and a director who says, I think you can do it, is kind of amazing. I had a solo in that, um, that series of carols that was really important to me. It was a beautiful song, and I got to sing some really high notes and really, really low notes as a teenager, and it just made me feel very strong and very capable. And so I'm talking about all this kind of as preamble to the, the flood motif, but I just want to drive home the importance of pairing the music of Benjamin Britten with Moonrise Kingdom of all of Wes's uh, of, because this is also the, the film of Wes's that takes children's experiences very seriously and doesn't treat them like adults, but treats them like important individuals whose experiences are unique and are meaningful and are human and not just childish. There is a real care and sensitivity to what kids Sam and Susie's age are going through, even when that gets to places that might make some people uncomfortable to watch. So I give that a lot of commendation and I just wanna bring that in before we even talk about the flood motif. It's like the composer of the flood opera. Oh, it connects. Is a super important connection. I just have to pause a moment and just say, I love you but you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, I know very well what I'm talking about. I'm kidding. That's just a line Sam I, says in the movie. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> and it's one of the best lines in the movie. So yeah, I, I definitely wanted to bring that up. Um, as far as the kind of biblical motifs there, I think there is plenty to mine, right? So there is the looming threat of the storm that hangs like a dark cloud over the movie and sets up a really kind of exciting, suspenseful atmosphere. It makes it feel again, much more enclosed, like this very insular society that is about to be rocked by this incredible force and has no idea, and so they're going on with all of their pettiness. Uh, the flood is also a, it's a natural phenomenon that washes things away, right? It destroys, but it also removes, and the flood in the story, the flood, the, the storm that actually happens deposits so much mineral and so many nutrients in the soil that they get an abundant crop the next year. So there is this... Correct me if I'm wrong, though. Moonrise Kingdom, the, the place that they coin as Moonrise yeah. Kingdom is gone. Yeah, that ends up being flooded, the coastal inlet. But there is this sense that even though so much is destroyed in uh, the flood and in the storm, there is also new growth that comes from it, which again is this metaphor for the flourishing of new relationships, the cycles of kind of rebirth of childhood, rebirth of innocence, rebirth of connection that is happening across the island of New Penzance. So those are just a couple of thoughts about the, the Noah's Flood imagery. Did you have any more to add? Yeah, I, I would like to just add a little bit, if that's cool with you, so we all know, all us Westerners have heard the story of Noah's Flood, but many of us might not know why stories like that existed. I'm taking the idea of Noah's Flood as myth, not as literal. If you literally believe in that, well, that's your prerogative. You're wrong. <laughs> 
You're right. Sorry. Never happened. <laughs> you can't fit every species of, of creature on a single boat and expect them to all then repopulate the earth. That's just nonsense. Challenge accepted. Yes. But that being stated, the earliest human civilizations were popped up as far as we know. All ancient history is as far as we know. There can be new evidence that can challenge what we know today. So as far as we know, the earliest human civilizations popped up around an area. It's in the modern-day Middle East around the Tigers and the Euphrates rivers called the Fertile Crescent. This is where Sumar, which would become the Sumerians, Babylon, the Babylonians, this is the place that would eventually be called ancient Mesopotamia, all these different names that we now use. And as far as stories could be told, stories of great floods existed. This is true in the very first written down creative story that we have in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which takes place in the ancient city of Ur, where there is a deluge, is the term that they use, a great flood that wipes everybody off the earth. There are stories of the ancient Mesopotamian gods using rain and flood as a way to wash away humans. And then there is also the ancient Hebrew story of Noah and the great flood. There's even flood stories that have existed and made their way to ancient Greece. The idea is in these societies so intimately linked to rivers and waters that floods were legitimate dangers. If the climate shifted and there was massive amounts of flooding, there's a very good chance that your civilization could get wiped off the planet. They're designed to evoke uh, humankind's smallness in the face of nature and way that every flood story, ancient flood story, I, I can't say every because I don't necessarily know them all, but the ancient flood stories that I know emanating from the ancient Near East, the modern Middle East, are all about humans' relationship to God in reverence to that God or gods, because if you pick them off, they will bring a flood and wipe you off the face of the, the earth. Start over. So if you have every ancient city-state popping up along rivers, and you're in mostly dry climates around those rivers, well, then what happens if there's rain? there's flood. What does flood do? Flood is a huge peril. I could also say having lived on and been an islander, my parents are still islanders, floods are still a legitimate dangerous peril that people worry about. I remember when Hurricane Sandy hit and my parents lived on an island and one out of every like 10 homes was wiped off the face of the earth just completely washed away amid this gigantic force of nature. Humans have always tried to reconcile their place in the cosmos and their place in their cosmos relative to the drama of their day-to-day -day lives. Lives are not easy. They weren't easy in the ancient world. They're not easy now. We have more comforts, but life is still not easy. Where do our day-to-day -day dramas fit next to the larger dramas of the forces of nature beyond our control? And I think the flood stories are about those anxieties and those fears and those humbling. Maybe what we're doing, what we're going through is not as important as what the force of nature will go through. Maybe we should reconcile our place in nature and, and be a little more humble versus the trials and tribulations of young love. And I think 
there is a spirit of ancient myth kind of pulsating like a vein through the Moonrise Kingdom. That there are ancient forces of love, ancient forces of weather, ancient forces of order and chaos, all kind of pitting themselves through the drama of these two characters, Sam and Susie. Yeah, I think that is very astute. And I think many of those colliding forces coming to a head is where the drama of this lies, right? So there is all of this intellectualism with Susie's parents who are lawyers and refer to each other as counselor. There is their brilliant legal minds. There is the great love between Sam and Susie. There is science in the changing of the climate and the narrator who is also a you know scout leader and taught Sam a little bit about meteorology has all of this kind of scientific input to say but that science can be poetic and all of that swirling together coming to a head with religion with community and with um the kind of struggles of families creates the really interesting story soup and kind of vibrates, right? It, it makes this land of New Penzance feel mythic. Meanwhile, we haven't even mentioned it's, uh, it's old Chickcha territory. So there is this layer of a sort of folkloric memory of the Native American peoples or the indigenous people who are no longer on the island, but their trail is still there. And there is a memory of them that is invoked by Sam several times. So all of these layered on top of each other make this place feel very mythic. So I, I, I agree, I think that's great. And I think broadly speaking, at least of the three pieces we've done of Wes Anderson, is that he is engaged in mythic language, even when He's evoking modern religious tropes. He does so, I would argue, from a mythic lens. He does so from a lens of, of the stories being malleable. They're not set in stone. We're not watching the recreation of Noah's Ark, but no, the spirit of an angry Old Testament God looking at these people being mad that they're, that they're like punishing these two young lovers like feels very prescient to me. So I feel like he engages in that. We said this in, in Royal Tenenbaums. We said this in Life Aquatic, that there is like this mythological current through these three movies. And I think it's absolutely present here. That being stated, I also feel like its writing is very Shakespearean. Would you, would you think so? I do. I think it's a very Shakespearean in the way that um, it... This is a Shakespearean tragedy. Most of the character, every character lives, right? The only character that dies is the dog. Yeah. Which oh, was poor Snoopy. Awful. And yet also like in retrospect in the does it hold up section, tough to watch. Like I forgot a dog dies in it. Um, but there is this per pervasive sense of Shakespearean tragedy in here, even though I think it does have a little more optimistic of an ending and I think that is not a mistake. I think this movie is absolutely kind of revamping Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it is kind of a subversive modern take on Romeo and Juliet. It puts real, you know, 12, 13-ish year old kids into it when the actual Romeo and Juliet, I think Juliet is 14 and Romeo is 17. Opinions and and you know, societal uh, 
ideas of adolescence and childhood are very, very different in the Renaissance than they are today in the modern world. But when you actually think of like what the development of a teenager is like versus the psychological development of us in our 30s and 40s, like there's a big difference there in terms of maturity. And so this reimagining of Romeo and Juliet has a lot of fun delving into the really profound depths of what that burgeoning maturity can look like for these characters and what their community can look like. I, you know, have a, a mixed kind of relationship with Romeo and Juliet the play, but you can't deny that it has some of the greatest poetry in the canon and that it has in many ways some really wonderful things to say about love and true love, but I ultimately think it is a play about what violence can do to a community. And you're talking about Romeo and Juliet or Moonrise Kingdom? Romeo and Juliet. Okay. But I want to think about that when looking at Moonrise Kingdom because just like RNJ, we have at the center a pair of oh, star crossed. It's RNJ it, now. RNJ. You're such a that's a theater kid thing, isn't it? Cuz mm -hmm. like no one calls it RNJ unless you right? Am I right? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a theater kid thing. But I'm not a theater kid, and, and you are. Sorry, I interrupted. Just like R&J, we have at the center of our story a pair of star-crossed lovers. And in Sam and Susie, we get a pair of star-crossed lovers who are referred to with some kind of derogatory terms about their potential mental illness or behavioral uh, health issues. And so we have revolving around their love an isolation that's created by people's inability to understand why they're having emotional problems at their age. There is violence that occurs in and around Sam and Susie's lives because they are not supported properly in terms of their mental health. And they're not able yeah, to I get mean, the- Yeah, Susie stabs a kid. Yeah, they're not able to get the help that they need. And they're in a time when that's not understood in a way that it is now. This takes place in the 60s, so there's not as much understanding of mental health. And so they're just called severely troubled children. And the community around them is so unable and ill-equipped to help them that they demonize the kids and they force them to run away. So there is this deep parallel to Romeo and Juliet in the fact that Sam and Susie, like the star-crossed lovers of the Shakespeare play, have to hide their love and have to you know, perform their rituals in secret. But Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy, and Moonrise Kingdom is a comedy. It has all the makings of a tragedy, but it turns comic. And the reason for that is that unlike Romeo and Juliet, where the ancient grudges between the Montagues and the Capulets are so deep and so inexplicable and so mysterious that there is no untangling them, no matter what you can do, even the deepest, truest spirit of love who bestows, you know, deep romance on Romeo and Juliet cannot uproot the violence that runs through that community. The community of New Penzance, for all their faults, eventually figure it out and come together for the welfare of their kids. That is such a generous and sincere act, I think, of restoration for the souls of Romeo and Juliet. When I watch Moonrise Kingdom, I feel like I'm watching the Montagues and the Capulets be absolved. I'm watching them do like the 3,000th time through the cycle of samsara where they finally are like, 
hey, everything we're doing is sending our kids onto the roof of a church in the middle of a hurricane. Maybe someone should go out there and give them a hand. So I, I find this, this movie a very moving take on the star-crossed lovers trope where it's not just about these two kids. Their love is real in this, in this time, in this summer, and next summer too. And maybe they will grow up and get married. And maybe they will grow apart when they end up in their 20s and Susie goes to college or Sam becomes a police officer. Maybe they will not end up together, but their love is real and it is meaningful. However, the most important relationships that are built are those that forge connections across a community that was in tatters. So for all the violence that revolves around this union, ultimately it comes together in an act of pure restoration. So that's what I love about it. Yeah, at the end of the day, no matter how flawed these adults are, they give a damn. They, they do yeah. want to love these kids and make sure that they're safe. And that that ends up winning out. Despite all their faults and all of the things that they got wrong, there is this moment where, like, we're not going to let these kids die no matter what. I will adopt Sam and, and give him the family that he deserves to the best of my abilities, which is, you know, the sheriff's character admits to Sam when they are, like, sharing a sausage, like, you're smarter than me, Sam. I don't know if I'm good at this, but I'm just going to do my best. And then he gives him a beer. <laughs> and he gives him some beer, you know? And so, like, at the end of the day, even though, um, you know, Susie's parents are a tumultuous, unhappy, loveless marriage, there's the moment where Susie's mom is giving Susie a bath. And, like, her love and care for Susie is real. She's just doesn't know how to be a good mom anymore. And like at the end of this, she I, I feel like all of these characters relearn. I'm just going to care for these kids. They just need love. They're, that's the thing that they're missing. Unlike Romeo and Juliet, where it is the death of the two children that causes the adults, that causes... And, and in Romeo and Juliet, you know, the difference is, is, you know, I feel like Wes Anderson is looking at Romeo and Juliet and says, what if they were actually kids? And contemporaneously, we look at Romeo and Juliet, a lot of people do and be like, this place kind of messed up because these are children. It's worth pointing out that when Shakespeare was writing in the late Middle Ages, sometimes also called the Renaissance, when he was writing, they were adults. They were no longer children at that point. You know, the idea that you're still a child into your teens is something that is relatively new in Western civilization. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I think that's actually right. I'm glad that that happens. But in that context of that time, though they are young people and everyone would know them as young people, they are considered full adults. And children in that period, too, did not have rights like they have now. Now we have childhood rights. So I feel like Wes Anderson is reimagining Romeo and Juliet and saying, what if this happened in a modern era where children have rights, where more rights at, at, at the very least than they did then? What would it look like if two kids fell in love and the entire society was trying to pull them apart? And this was his kind of answer to that. 
And at no point in time are these two children not children, yet he is constantly taking what they're going through seriously, which I think is a connecting theme in these three things. What happens to children matters. So often adults gloss over, oh, it's just a kid, they'll grow out of it, it's fine. However, their experiences, their thoughts, feelings, and emotions are incredibly important and should not be dismissed. Part of what makes both Susie and Sam dysfunctional kids is that their emotions, feelings, and thoughts are often just pushed to the side. Like, oh, you're just a kid, don't feel, it's fine, you won't have to feel that way. Instead of really engaging. Their love story makes the adults really engage with them. It makes the adults better, and it makes Sam and Susie better. Yeah, and look at Cousin Ben, right, at the neighboring summer camp when they arrive and say, we want to be married. And Cousin Ben, played by Jason Schwartzman, says, I can't offer you a legally binding union, but the ritual does carry a very important moral weight within yourselves. And then he sends them off to have a serious conversation about whether they're actually ready for the responsibility of marriage. Even though it is not a legally binding marriage, it is something they do in a tent at a summer camp. But how many of us like did fake little weddings on playgrounds and put this incredible weight into relationships that we made in our childhood and our youth. Also, this echoes, of course, Romeo and Juliet being married by the friar in the play and also in another great adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story, there is a sort of symbolic wedding between Tony and Maria that occurs just between the two of them and the connection of their souls. So... I think you're onto something here with this idea of real sensitivity to children's experiences being deeply formative and being deeply important. The point that we're seeing in Sam and Susie's life, this is the summer where they begin to become who they're going to be, right? That is an age where so many things are cemented about you and the books you read, the music that you listen to, the people that you spend your summers with, the memories that you make, those will be with you forever. So what happens to them this summer, it, it better be constructive or it's going to be destructive. And very often your first love is not your final love, but no one forgets their first love. No one forgets their first love. You know, like it is still incredibly important. And though they are 12 and that's very young to have a first love, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a first love at the age of 12, but all that being stated, it is still incredibly important to both of these two children. And it is a, a binding force in, and in both Romeo and Juliet and in Moonrise Kingdom, it's a binding force. It just takes the children to die in um, Romeo and Juliet for it to become a binding force where it is take, it takes these two children to be saved and in that way, I think you're right. I think it uplifts it and makes it a comedy and not a tragedy. But this movie really knows how to play with both incredibly well. And I think in that respect, it is, it's truly exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this movie says that love, you know, just like Romeo and Juliet, love is courageous. Loving is an act of courage, especially because the world is usually telling you that it is not safe to love. So in Romeo and Juliet, the fiercest, most powerful, most connected lovers fail because the community can't hold them up. And in this story, 
the community bends to meet these children where they're at, even if that is, you know, on a steeple in the middle of a hurricane. And it takes them in like mortal peril for it to yeah, happen. Yeah. But sometimes it takes the most extreme things, which goes back to the flood metaphor. It takes the precipice of the deluge and then being wiped off the face of the earth to be like, whatever we got to do, let's save these two kids. Absolutely. What else you got? Just another small Shakespeare connection is that Bob Balaban's character, the narrator, very much to me comes across like a Shakespearean fool in many ways, uh, because most of Shakespeare's fools like Touchstone and the fool in King Lear and the fool in uh, Twelfth Night are these characters who kind of have one foot in the real world and one foot in the kind of spiritual or magical world. They usually have access to some sort of uh, higher wisdom or knowledge that is at odds with their kind of clownish nature. And many times they are some of the wisest people within the story. So the fact that there is this storyteller who's half in the world half out of it and has this prophetic foresight about what is going to happen and frames the narrative out that way just reminded me of Shakespeare's Fools. But I know you also mentioned that it reminded you of a Greek chorus or of an oracle. So I thought that was a great comment. Yeah, you know, one thing that I thought of when re-watching it, like post, like the first time I watched it, there was no Midnight Myth. Second time I watched it, post-Midnight Myth, was sort of the a Dionysian spirit of it. And I know like you thought that this was quite a bit of a stretch, but I'd like to go down this rabbit hole if you'll permit me. I think you should. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Dionysus, the Greek God and how I feel like this movie in a subtle way, maybe not necessarily super consciously is a nod and a wink to Dionysus and the Dionysian spirit So Dionysus, we all know, is the Greek god of wine, uh, predominantly. He's also the Greek god uh, of the theater. So a few things about Dionysus, just to get like sort of the air clear about who the god was, etc. Dionysus, depending upon the mythic tradition, was um, the child of Zeus and a mortal woman. So Zeus comes, does not rape, but consensually has sex with a mortal woman, depending upon the story, depends upon which mortal woman and a child is born. Or, pardon me, the mortal woman gets pregnant. Zeus's wife Hera is mad and tricks the woman into convincing Zeus to show her Zeus's godlike form, not Zeus's mortal form, which burns her to a cinder, and then Zeus picks up the unborn child and sews the child into his leg, and then the child is born out of Zeus's leg. That's the, the, the standard story. Sometimes it is actually a nymph or a goddess that Zeus had the relationship with. Sometimes it's Persephone, but there's a whole bunch of different versions of the, the, the myth out there. But ultimately, Zeus has an affair with Hera. Zeus accidentally burns the mother to the ground, takes the embryo, sews it into his leg. Dionysus is born. Dionysus cannot be on Olympus because Hera is ticked off because I'm not going to let like the child of my husband's infidelity on Olympus. So Dionysus takes mortal form and has to walk the earth. Dionysus as a child, everywhere Dionysus goes, Dionysus' godhead, Dionysus' immortal nature is denied. Some myths have Dionysus becoming a conqueror, so, so far as conquering deep into India and then coming back, 
some myths have Dionysus all over the world. And essentially, Dionysus travels and travels and comes back to Greece. And then when Dionysus comes back to Greece, it's just like, yo, I'm Zeus's son. I'm a god. Worship me. And people are still like, nah. Until Dionysus is teaches everybody how to grow grapes. And from growing grapes is the making of wine. Dionysus has very ancient roots, potentially pre-Greek in the, the uh, Bronze Age Greece era. Uh, potentially, some people argue that Dionysus isn't Greek at all. Dionysus has gone through different forms and facets. One of the um, things that Dionysus was most known for was festivals around theater. Dionysus is, we know him as the god of wine. We know Dionysus as the one that when you drink and you party. However, very late in the ancient Greek world did he become that. Before that, Dionysus is a little more mysterious to pin down. I mean that because his cults were called mysteries. Yeah. Mystery cults were cults where the only way you could know about them is if you were inducted in them. Got to go through some wild initiation. But what Dionysus is about is agriculture, connection to nature, regrowth, and transformation. This is why Dionysus is associated with theater, because in theater, the actor transforms from themselves to the other person. This is why Dionysus is a god of wine, because wine, when you drink it, you transform into your drunken self, your more Dionysian self. So a few things I, I picked out that I thought in this movie were, if not literally symbolically Dionysus, one, it is the theater that connects both Sam and Susie. Susie is dressed up as an animal in the theater. There is a cult in the Dionysian mysteries that what we do know about them featured common women, women that were not noble, who would dress up as animals, drink wine, and put on shows. They called them maenads. If you've seen True Blood Season 2, you have some seen idea. Seen a terrible rendering of that. You yeah. have some <laughs> idea of what a maenad is, right? But they're called, they called themselves the maenads, and they would dress up as animals and drink wine, and they would get wild and crazy, and they'd have these raucous parties out in the woods where no one could see them. Also, Dionysus had to travel around as a child. Sam is a consummate wanderer. Though a consummate wanderer, he is also a consummate tamer of nature. Everywhere he goes, his scout nature allows him to shape and scold the natural environment to his will. Much like Dionysus, who is a conqueror of India, he is a conqueror of Thebes, he is someone that can tame nature and cultivate it. Though we think of being in the Dionysian spirit as being connected to nature, but cultivation as dominance of nature, to Dionysus, cultivation is nature itself. It's not conquering it. It's participation. It's, it's communing with it and transforming because of it. So if we think of Dionysus as a god, a child, as a child, a wanderer, an orphan who did not have parents, there are several myths where Dionysus gets connected with, with parents, that Zeus sets him up with, depending upon what myth, it could depend upon the parents. And in each one, Hera kills the parents. 
He is an orphan. It's basically the equivalent of being bounced around from foster home to foster home. It's basically the equivalent of social services killing the parents and pushing you from one place to another so you're doomed to walk the earth alone. Right? And so the other, like, major tell, it's one of the, like, climactic moments of the movie. Sam seems to summon a lightning bolt and get struck by it to stop his pursuers from capturing him. And Sam, not injured by the lightning bolt, is rejuvenated by the lightning bolt. Well, the son of Zeus, Zeus the god who harnesses the lightning bolt, of course he's impervious to the lightning bolt's destructive force. When it hits him, all it does is repel all of the his... his uh, um, What's the word I'm looking pursuers. for? Pursuers. Pursuers, thank you. All it does is repel his pursuers and invigorate him to continue on his quest. So it, it, then even with the storm at the end, the storm being a product of the lightning bolt and him being the master of the storm, um, Dionysus was so pervasive and so popular among the common people that in the ancient world, they tried to squash it. In the ancient Greek world, they did try to kind of squash it and be like, hey, these commoners, they're really way too into this. They're drinking way too much wine. That changed when the Macedonians under Philip of Macedon became essentially the warlord or king of all Greece, the Rex of all Greece. Rex is a Latin term, so yes. But he became the, the king of all Greece and planned his conquering of Persia. Well, he ends up dying under mysterious circumstances where his son usurps him and Alexander ends up becoming now the king of Greece. The Macedonians, they love to party. They love to drink their wine. And this is when Dionysian becomes linked with the, uh, with the nobility, with the, the ruling body. And what does Alexander do? His conquest goes directly to India, mirroring what Dionysus was have said to have done, which was conquer the lands of India. So he ends up living the Dionysian spirit so I feel like, I don't know if it's a direct, we're talking about Dionysus, but I do feel like the Dionysian spirit, the connection, the child wandering, the child of love, Dionysus has a mortal wife for a very long period of time, just in the way that Susie is like a mortal wife, and you're cast out from Olympus. We talked about the royal Tenenbaums as a myth of what if Zeus repents? And this is to me like, what if the child of Zeus, left alone, has to wander an island? What would that child do? He can still summon lightning when need be, but what would that do? He would become the Dionysian on Earth. You know, I have to admit, I had some doubts about this argument when you brought it up to me, but I thought that was really well said. I think you made a really compelling case. And now I'm seeing the scene between Sam and Susie where they have the little flowers in their hair. And I'm almost seeing Susie uh, as her Greek counterpart being a Persephone style character who is beautiful and decks herself in flowers and has this kind of innocence and this love of nature about her, but then is also like this dark, dreaded, to be feared, thonic goddess who will stab you with scissors. And she plays a raven in the Noah's Flood opera because she's dark. So well, I, I kind of love that. That's funny that you say that. For a while, Dionysus was a Chthonic. Yeah. To, to flesh that out, if you don't know what a Chthonic 
god or goddess is, it's a god or goddess of death. Right. And or uh, also considered uh, below ground, underground, underworld connected as well. Correct. And you had to have gone into the underworld and come back to be Chthonic. And Dionysus, in some mythic traditions, had to go into the underworld and come back in order to like assume his power. So Dionysus was worshipped that as a Chthonic god. Um, and it was the, the Macedonians that made him the party god. Right? Like, oh, let's party and hang out. It's Dionysus. It's the Bacchanal. Woohoo! But when I saw these two young people donned in flowers, dancing, professing their love to each other, and wandering the wilderness by themselves, I'm just like, that is capturing the tragic Dionysian spirit. And these kids are transformed. The community is transformed. It may not be through religious frenzy, but it is through connection to the natural world, to the cycles and the violence of the natural world that can occur, but that can also wash things away and make new things grow. There is some real powerful, phenomenal force at work on the characters in this, in this movie, and they come out you know, still broken, but at least trying. $64,000 question for you. Yeah. We have done three Wes Anderson movies. We've been talking about Wes Anderson for the last month, month and a half, however long it's been, I don't know. What have we learned? I think this was a really interesting selection of his movies to explore because we have found ways to link all of them to ancient mythology and they have shown quite a progression of his career. We went chronologically as far as when these movies came out, and we skipped a few, of course, but Royal Tenenbaums was the earliest of the films we talked about, then Steve Zissou, and, and now Moonrise Kingdom. So we've seen a little bit of a growth and a progression and a maturity in Wes's approach to directing. That doesn't mean necessarily that any film is better than the other, we can look back at Royal Tenenbaums and still say it's a masterpiece, even though I think he honed his craft on the way to Moonrise Kingdom and beyond. So I, I think one thing I've really learned is that despite Wes Anderson's pitch perfect, like you know it is Wes style, no matter what movie it is, you know it's him because it's a pretty little jewel box with needle drops and symmetry and pastels, we have seen a really marvelous depth and breadth of content, right? So he has chosen to tell very different kinds of stories that harp on similar archetypes. He has chosen to set them in vastly different places, and they are vastly different movies. You know they're Wes, but Moonrise Kingdom is nothing like The Life Aquatic, and The Life Aquatic is quite a bit like Royal Tenenbaums and also not anything like Royal Tenenbaums. All these movies live in the same mind, but are very, very different and show very different sides, I think, of an artistic mind and someone who is just interesting, interested in exploring the intricacies and the weirdness and the quirks of human nature from a, 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 an approachable and beautiful, whimsical lens. So there's one of those things I've learned. I think the connective tissue in all three movies is that all three movies are about families, albeit dysfunctional families. Whether those are chosen families, biological families, it's all about how do people who are 
very, very lonely end up feeling connected to other humans and their desire to connect to other humans. And I think in that respect, despite the pastels and the styles and the symmetry, the symmetry part of me, I think their movies are both beautifully tragic and comedic at the same time. Yeah. I know that there are plenty of people out there that when they watch us, Wes Anderson, they see the Wes Anderson style and that distracts them from the narrative. I am not one of those people. I'm one of those people that think that the style and the narrative, more often than not, he's got a lot of movies, so not all of them are going to be home runs, right? More often than not, feed into each other. I am often shocked when I look at other individuals who I, people, groups that I think are savvy, smart, intelligent, and positive film goers that like to discuss and deconstruct movies, I'm often shocked about the opinions on Wes Anderson movies because I find I'm constantly in the polar opposite. The ones people think are the most amazing, I think are the most right. The ones that I think are the most amazing tend to be considered the most right. So I find myself in this experiment doing just the tip of the iceberg of Wes Anderson. I find myself at odds with the conventional opinions and conventional approaches and conventional um, discourse around Wes Anderson. And I can't help but think that no matter where we land on what Wes Anderson is good, what Wes Anderson is trite, what Wes Anderson is, is art and what Wes Anderson is commercialized and devoid of art, artistic merits. And I'm down for all of those debates. I find like no matter where we're at in an era where most movies are recycled, homogenized, uh, bankable IPs IP, yeah. that we've got someone like Wes Anderson being like, I'm going to do something that no one saw coming. Whether it works or not, I think that is a profoundly amazing part of our current film zeitgeist. I think it's just amazing that a guy like Wes Anderson is able to go out there and make these movies, even if some of these movies are or are not successful artistically. We can debate that. And I'm down for that debate. You know, I don't think there's a monopoly on it. Uh, I've heard mixed things about his latest movie that came out. I, for one, can't wait to see it. And whether he is uh, obsessed with his own style and has no substance, whether that substance and style are the same, those debates I think are important. But I think what's lost for me, reflecting going backwards, is this man tells stories about people going and families in particular about families and when his movies are about families i think they're the most artistically successful about families struggling to love and the ones that i i think are the most impactful are the ones where they learn to love and that's what i take away no matter how hard it is no matter how complicated it is no matter what mistakes you've made love learn to love do your best to love. Everything else can be 
forgiven, everything else can be corrected, whether it's Royal Tenenbaums, which is like, do it right before it's too late, to Life Aquatic, where it's like, too late, you learned it, and it's too late to do it. God, Life Aquatic still makes me like, almost cry. I'm tearing oh. up just thinking about Life Aquatic people. Or whether it's Moonrise Kingdom, which is like, it's not too late. We can do it. We can do it right now. Whether it's that, I think that's the connective thing from the three movies. And I think the, the, the movies where Wes Anderson, where I tend to like it the most, I think those are the themes that I, I pick out. No matter how pretty the package, there's nothing more beautiful than that, right? There's nothing more beautiful than learning to love. I, I, I can't even talk about Life Aquatic without tearing up. Oh, poor Derek. I know, I'm tearing up right now. So with that, I'm done. Got anything else? Nope, that is it. Until next time, be kind. I love you, but you don't know what you're